0: My guest today is Professor Jean Camp, who is a professor at the School of Informatics and Computing at Indiana University. She's a fellow of the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Her research goal is the security that people need, the privacy they want in systems they can trust. Welcome, Jean.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Um, I want to start with one of your papers, "Reconceptualizing the Role of Security User," in which you say the internet is not only the not only critical infrastructure that relies on the participation of unorganized and technically inexpert end users. Uh, transportation, health, waste management, and disaster preparedness—you say—are the other areas where cooperation between unorganized citizens who lack experience with the domain has increased resiliency, reduced social costs, and helped meet shared goals. Theories of community-based production and management of the commons explain this type of cooperation both offline and online, you say. So, so what is community-based production in the context of internet?
1: So the basic concept with community-based production, is that you can have something that's perceived as a commons, and the classic example of that is a fishery. It is very hard to stop people from going out and catching fish. So in economic terms, it's not excludable. It's hard to stop people Hmm. in a community from getting on their boat and going out and, and catching a fish. In economic terms, it's also what's called rivalrous, which means if I catch a fish, you can't catch a fish. And that combination of features is what defines a common pool good. So we're all used to the tragedy of the commons, and there's also this tragedy in common pool goods. So what I was saying in that paper is that we should look at the human component of economics of security, I mean, of security, using an economics lens, because right now the focus on people is they should be more compliant. They should be be better at reading phishing emails. You know, the general idea is that there's this huge pyramid of Security above us, and then the tip of that pyramid is pointing down on the user's head, and they Mm -hmm. have to do everything right. And if they screw up, the whole thing collapses, right?
2: Mm.
1: And each of us is kind of alone in that. You know, you get your training, you should, you know, learn the 12 things that help you recognize phishing emails, but if we were able to work collaboratively and share more information, then we could have a better outcome for everyone. So a lot of my work is focused on uh, having the computer trying to serve the individual. So for example, If I go to a web page I've never gone to before, the computer Mm -hmm. knows that. If I go to a web page that none of my friends have gone to before, right, in my social network, the computer also knows that. But it it doesn't tell me that. It doesn't tell me this is an unfamiliar page. That is Mm -hmm. the kind of information that we could create if we shared information with each other.
0: Hmm. Okay, so so if we do that, uh, you argue everybody's better off. Uh, you say in the paper, community-based production can uh, can drive the creation of any good that possesses the following characteristics. Modularity, low capital requirements for entry into production, low marginal cost of production, and well-defined interfaces or interactions resulting in low cost of integration all of these properties exist for the internet right yes
1: they do and i would love to say that that was my original insight but i have to shout out to yohai binkler here who wrote the paper "Cosis penguin that yeah. it you know in this case we could share relatively small amounts of information and know what is what is familiar and what is, is well known. And that familiarity, in fact, according to human subjects research is part of what makes it easy to entrap people in phishing attacks.
0: Okay, so, um, the first, uh, so th- there could be a human component of sharing, but you also mentioned you know with uh, with machine learning and artificial intelligence, you could have the computer making some of these decisions right uh, so how how do those things interact and what what might be optimum
1: Oh, that is really right to the heart of my some of my research questions thank you <laughs> okay, sure. uh, so one of my continuing struggles in in working in security is uh, how do you get the computer and the human to work so that we have an optimal partnership so the name of my group you know is hats human and technical security with you know you can you can tell this comes from my um southern upbringing that you know the right hat for the right occasion you are never going to wear, you know, that church hat to the baseball game. So
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: The, the uh, um, idea being that if we can determine the context that the person thinks they are in and mm-hmm. share enough information about that context, then the person can make the right decision. Because you don't want to tell people, oh, you don't ever want to go to an unfamiliar website, because the the fundamental experience of being on the Internet is one of discovery. But you mm. don't want people to believe that they are in a highly familiar place that is very trusted when they are, in fact, in some odd little uh, malicious corner.
0: Right right and so 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 correct me if I'm wrong, Jane. so the way that I think about this then is you know we are getting autonomous vehicles now, increasingly we're going to have fleets, fleets of uh, autonomous vehicles, and the idea would be that vehicle to vehicle communication uh, would be sort of automatic as well, right so so are we heading toward? Um, you know sort of machine to machine conversations uh, to be uh, automatic and and be sort of optimizing for the entire com- community or um, or is it you know still people involved in this process how How do you think about this
1: Human and computer judgments are very different, and we have very different strengths. Yeah. So when you talk about something like long haul automobile driving, I think that is a great place for computers. You know, going down the highway where there shouldn't be any uh movement perpendicular to the highway. So the computer should be able to detect a deer or a dog or um in the absolute worst imaginable case a human and yeah. preventing uh, i accidents between humans i think that's great but then when you move into an environment where a lot of the interaction is just human so if you're if you are driving down the street
2: yeah
1: and you see two kids playing with a ball, you know to slow down, because you know that kids who are playing will focus on their toy and one right out in the street in front of you, right? You see, you know, a kid on a bike, you're like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a major, give them a lot of space, or somebody who's wobbling on their bicycle. And we do yeah. a lot of human interaction when we drive, So when you are stopped at a stop sign and somebody walks up, you look at their face to and their body language to decide if they're going to walk in front of you or not, right? Right, right. So there's definitely going to be a component of human judgment in that for a long time. Yes. Again, and that's where people are very good at context.
0: Hmm. But from a security perspective, Gene, um, would you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you say that the human is sort of inferior? Uh, let me make the statement and you can, <laughs> you can tell me if it is uh, right or wrong. Um, I would argue that the human is sort of inferior to assess uh, security issues and to intervene um, in the presence of a, a, a break, a security break. Uh, whereas a computer might be uh, faster, better, and, and, and really superior to human. From a, from, I'm, I'm just talking now uh, totally in the context of security and internet. Is, it, is that not true?
1: Computers are better than humans at what? They are better at recognizing the familiar from the unfamiliar but they are terrible at determining if it's going to be a benefit for the human to go to the familiar or not. So hmm. let's take an example where you are sitting at your computer and you maybe are in a terrible pandemic and are you know, <laughs> feeling a little isolated and having a miserable day. And so you decide to go to a site that is familiar. So I will, I get no money from this site, but I will tell you that sometimes I do go to kitten wars, um, (laughs) which is like, it it makes me smile and it's, it's very short kind of commitment. Um, A computer's optimization would say I should not go there because it doesn't Mm. It's not productive. (laughs) Okay. And when you start having automated decision-making based on invisible optimization and you decrease human autonomy, yes, maybe you can get more security narrowly construed But Hmm. you are paying uh, a critically important price on human autonomy. So, for example, we don't make cars that can't speed. Mm -hmm. We don't make cars that can't speed because sometimes the safest thing to do is to speed. Sometimes you want Mm -hmm. to... Um, swerve out of the way. Sometimes you want to pass another car that, you know, is going five miles an hour and to say, all right, well, you're just trapped behind this other car because you would have to speed to pass it. It say would be to say, this is a risk that you as a human, the infrastructure has decided we cannot take. And then maybe you live in a rural area or for another reason you are the fastest the fastest way to get to the hospital is to put the person in the car and drive to the hospital right we allow people to take physical risk but when you are taking these physical risks you um you have been acclimated to it your your entire life people are are used to cars and there is a lot of protection for you in the worst case so in 1970 let's to to go with the metaphor of automobiles and say the 70s you could get in an accident where you know the people inside were were literally uh killed right you know People would go through the windshield and it was like, oh, yeah, man, people just go through the windshield. Too bad about that. But then we decided (laughs) that's not going to happen. And now automobiles collapse around the human. We're still allowed to take risk. But if there is a problem, it collapses around the human. And the nice thing about automobiles is they are dealing with physical force, which is absolutely deterministic. Right. But right. all the machine learning models and AI are fundamentally um, about correlations and and predictions. <laughs> they're they're very stochastic. So when, when we don't have the certainty that you are definitely at risk, right?
0: Right. So so in the again going back to the internet context, uh, community community based production. Um, so, so what is the what is sort of the uh, the headline here, uh, Jean? Is it that um, we can, if if we share some information, in this case, humans uh, are making those decisions mm-hmm. with a larger community. Um, it doesn't matter how your level of expertise might be. It doesn't matter how you know how knowledgeable you are, how internet works, and so on. It actually results in an overall benefit for the community?
1: Is that the argument? Yes, that we are, we are, so there are two things that we are not doing in security. We're not treating it like the humans are partners um, in risk management. We're treating it like the human is at the tip of the pyramid and holding it all up. At the same time, they're not getting the support that they need. Hmm. And we are, creating these crash conditions where once a person makes one bad decision the entire computer is is damaged right so if you yeah. if you so one of the things that i'm seeing i i don't know i admit i read this on twitter all right so I know, uh, I know the person there is working for Google. They may just be thinking out loud. They were talking about reducing functionality of unfamiliar sites. So if I go to a brand new site and it's completely untrusted, I may have to click a few more buttons to choose to allow this software to run on my machine. Right. Mm. And I will I will know that it's unfamiliar because I will have the experience of engaging with it as new and unfamiliar. Great. So. That is, for me, an example about how things can be made to collapse around the user. I think the worst example of this in technology today is really, um, the way the public key infrastructure is treated so if you look at the baseline of the the certificate authorities are the entities that sign the cryptographic attestations of trusted yeah. domain names so in other other words uh, a crypt a uh, certificate authority decides whether or not you have a little lock on your browser. Um, right. When you download it right now, actually, many people only re- interact with a handful of these, right? And they think, oh, these are the people I trust. I trust Microsoft. I trust Google. You pretty, you know, you pretty much have to trust some of the larger, um, the larger certificate authorities, but if you look at some of the attacks on the subversions of these, one of them, for example, was a a public transit company in a city in India that had a technical failure, um, then signed a certificate, signed a bunch of, you know, a bunch of certificates and attestations were signed, right? And people are like, well, the human cannot be expected to know when they open a web page and it says, you know, google.com, that it was signed by a taxi company in India. It was actually public transport, I guess. Um, That maybe we should be making explicit decisions to trust beyond or across jurisdictional boundaries or to trust new and different entities. That's what I mean, all the the computer could do was say, hey, yeah, this was totally certificately legitimate. Whereas if the human had had the information that I've never encountered this certificate authority before, um, then the person could have recognized the context. On the other hand, If they want if I'm going to India because I do believe travel is a thing that will happen again, um (laughs) I may want to be buying a bus ticket before I leave.
0: Mm -hmm. But but who appoints a certificate authorities? What is the process there? Well,
1: in some places it's quite opaque, like um Mm. but when it comes to the public internet, which means signing domain names, which means that a lot of the IOT and cyber physical systems depend on this too. The governance of that entity is literally the certificate authority browser forum. We have an entire infrastructure that was built basically assuming credit cards, right? I'm going to buy... A sweater and a software package, and if one of them is bad, I can return it. And it really has not evolved to the modern threat infrastructure. Right. Like when when CAs were being when this the browser forum was spinning up, you know the big hot new threat was somebody who was bored writing a malicious word macro that said, I love you, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was irritating and a little funny, but now we have large organized crime that is protected by nation states and Mm -hmm. individual humans can't be expected to stand up to that by themselves.
0: right so 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 there there are many ways you can get fooled, and so again, uh, from a sort of a community based production perspective, so what is the prescription how 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 do an individual counteract or can can she counteract what what is the prescription
1: well, i again, I think about the automobile metaphor where you want the computer to collapse around the person, and that is to say. Yeah. Um when I am in a different environment, so if you know, travel will happen again. So I I put my phone in my pocket and I'm in a room and the phone has the location of the room. The phone has the knowledge that all the devices around me are unfamiliar.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And as uh, contextually aware human, I have different behaviors in that environment than I do, and a different different risk profile in terms of my phone and my wallet and my my physical person and my money than I do right now where I am you know, I'm sitting at home, every device in this house is completely familiar to every other device.
0: So so are you suggesting that intelligence built into the into the phone and the yes, and the device? We need
1: to have more customized intelligence in the phone. I mean The irony is if if I wanted a pair of shoes, I could go to Converse and get this incredibly customized pair of shoes just exactly for me. But when I download a machine learning system from an AV company, or when I install a browser, I get the same trust defaults that everybody else on the internet gets. And I am going to say that my personal risk and trust, um, I, preferences and profile is more different from other people than our feet are different. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to mm-hmm. die on that hill.
0: Yeah, so I see that from a technology perspective, Jean. So where does the sharing, sharing come in here? from user to user. So in that
1: case, if you think about sharing, maybe you are in a, to take it to, you know, a workplace where there's, or a a home where there's a set of devices and these devices have histories and patterns of use, right? And then they start to deviate from that pattern of use. So we are sitting in a in in a conference room, and all our computers are, you know, they're checking mail or we're, and then suddenly one computer starts connecting to a site that has got an attestation from a CA we've never seen before, or everybody else's machines are the, behaving the same way, and this machine is suddenly uploading massive amounts of data the other machines in the room see it. So if if, mm, okay. if say there's four of you in the room and the person who's chairing the meeting, their machine is suddenly broadcasting huge amounts of data, you might ask the adjacent machines, you know, this machine is, is massively broadcasting. You might want to notify that person. Because
0: Mm, okay. Oh, fine. No, no. So it's so a sort of an environment uh, security um, score, yeah. so to speak, right? So, so it's not just a device. It's really all the devices in an environment. And, you know, just, just like the autonomous vehicles will communicate with each other, they would be in a position to communicate with each other. And that allows... That allows you say sort of a better uh, better protection for all involved for the entire yes.
1: community and right now we don't have enough information to protect ourselves or each other and so one of the right. things that I think we are going to see in the in the you know the coming years is we all have become much more aware of things like ransomware and the risk that we are you know we're we're all exposed to is you may see the if you the emergence of social norms that right um having a computer that is running malware becomes socially unacceptable. But to right. use okay. social okay. norms Means having some kind of transparency about, if not, you right. know, what website you went to, how much risk you're taking as a
0: whole. Hmm. Right, and if if one um, one unit in a network is infected, uh, really the network is at risk as well. Right, so it is a common pool of risk. That you want to you want to manage um, equipment by Yes,
1: equipment. exactly. So if you have, you know, so we think about access control. If I'm at work, I want access to everything because I don't want anything to get in the way of me doing my job. And everybody else has the same uh, the same goal. Right. You know, you. But if we had, for example, if you have a department of six people and you have a risk budget, right, just like you have how much, you know, you there's assumed you use this much paper. You have this salary pool and other levels of cumulative exposure to risk not just families, but work groups can take a certain amount of risk, right? They can take, they can use a certain amount of resource. And if we start to treat these, to start to treat risk as a commonly managed resource, we can also get information that allows people to self-manage more effectively. So if you have a group of people And one of them is, you know, downloading every single possible video from TikTok that has a cat in it, which might be, you know, humanly impossible regardless of where it comes from. And then you have other users which are, which are not taking that risk, but want to access another device. Having that kind of community management is a, a better way than just saying, oh, and you can never download a cat video, ever. Because if, you, if you're too constraining, <laughs> people will work around you. If you don't allow people to be human and to be a little variable, they are just going to you know, subvert your, your constraints.
0: Right. Yeah. If if you put too many prescriptive <laughs> constraints, uh, it becomes a game to get uh, get around it, and uh, that wouldn't help anybody. Um, so, Jean, we need to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, your macroeconomic analysis of the Rocky right. Anomalies Thank you. Paper. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, Jane, I want to uh, go into another paper um, entitled Macroeconomic Analysis of Routing Anomalies, in which you say routing anomalies beyond simple leaks are occurring on the order of tens of thousands a year. Uh, These may be accidents, but there is anecdotal evidence that indicates criminal intent. Uh, So any given anomaly could be an accident, a crime, or an attack, Although it's impossible to directly observe the motivation of those who generate these anomalies, aggregate data about the sources of those anomalies uh, is, is available. Uh, now, a routing anomaly, Jane, just for my own understanding, um, you go from uh, node to node on the internet. I don't quite know how um, <laughs> how a packet is routed. Uh, And so is there an expectation that a packet will be routed in certain way and an anomaly is uh, something that shows up uh, when the packet is not routed the way that was intended?
1: Yes, there is um, a tremendous amount of resilience in the Internet because of the way the autonomous systems, the networks, connect to each other. Hmm. And the way they connect is when you, when you want to go from one point to another point on the internet, you, um, you just, you don't establish a connection and reserve resources. You say, yep. here's my data, I, ideally encrypted, right? Hmm. And please deliver it the best way possible. Right. Now, one way to get data is to send out misinformation about where you are located. So mm. we've had some some very interesting routing that has occurred. So, for example, <clears throat> I for a, quite some time packets that went from Denver to Denver went via an ISP in Iceland that Mm. appears to have been subverted by Russia. Mm. And so you might be thinking, well, you know, rural Colorado outside of Denver, that is so boring. Why would they want that? But in fact, it's very interesting. It's where NORAD is and Cheyenne Mountain and Oh it, uh, there's quite a the Air Force academy there's quite a lot of assets there and so
0: but, but how is the route determined what what is the mechanics
1: so what you wow well, so there a lot goes into how routing is determined yeah, yeah. but there are two or three basics one right. is the distance hmm. so if You are closer to, you are the closest person to where I want to go, I will give my packet to you. Okay. The other is customer relationships. So if you are already my customer and I'm certain that I won't have to pay extra for you to route this, you may be a little further away than other people. than the the strictly closest person, but I'll still give you my packet. Um, And if you think about closeness, there's also congestion, right? So perhaps you are the closest Mm -hmm. person and you're my customer, but you're already overwhelmed. So anything I would give you would go into a queue that you would Mm -hmm. handle later i don't want to do that i'll go to the second best route
0: okay, there's so some sort of optimization, so distance, congestion, uh, the customer relationship so when a packet is routed from x to y, is that a transaction that is monetized by by some way is, are there per
1: packet charges? There are certainly traffic and bandwidth charges and Okay. If you are doing that on the old fashioned, you know, telecommunication services, there are publicly regulated agreements about how much can be charged. But if you're doing it on the Internet in a packet service there, uh, those agreements are called peering agreements and there is not transparency there. So you are going to have to get somebody way above my pay grade. To tell you about how those are negotiated.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. And so, so so very simplistically, distance and congestion are the sort of the driving factors. Uh it it, it will look sort of odd going from uh, a place in Denver to another place in Denver through Iceland. And so so that is what you mean by an anomaly, right? Yes.
1: Now that was actually a hijack. There was another kind of um that I that is reasonable to assert that you know when we when we kind of jokingly made our paper incompetence, criminals, and spies, that would be the spy category. Um yeah. there are also people that do routing hijacks for money. So a really easy to understand one is that there was a bunch of people who came together to form a mining pool, which is really common. And they all invested all of their shared resources into mining Bitcoin, which is really just making a calculation um, over and over and over and trying to get an output of a certain type. And so the likelihood that any one person will get this output is... Uh, low and also unpredictable and so people form groups and they say oh well you know the x you know all of us will get together and we'll just split the rewards okay so they were doing that and then every time they got a hit every time they got an actual you know coin they were depositing it in an unauthenticated Amazon cloud they didn't they didn't even have a password and so somebody noticed this and then they just sent out an announcement that was like oh yeah this one IP range that you're using on Amazon cloud you should definitely travel past me to get there <laughs> and then they just uh watched the traffic go through and uh, pulled off the,
0: pulled off the bitcoins. Hmm. So, so in this paper, you say we examine anomalies um, as likely due to incompetence, but it could be incompetence or accidents, uh, potential crime or intelligence operations or an attack, using macroeconomics by leveraging three theories from criminology and global measures of technology adoption. So, so what are the three theories you talk about here?
1: Oh, um, that, is, that is super fun, because the thing about using macroeconomics for e-crime is that we actually don't really know what causes e-crime. I mean, what causes crime. So <laughs> if you think about the offline theories of crime there is that kind of i'm sure you've heard the idea of just criminals rob banks because that's where the money is right Mm -hmm. so (laughs) then in that way what we would be looking for is kind of an expected rate of return so, that is a, a situation where it's strictly rational and people are self optimizing. And right? so, that was the original kind of theory of crime. People do it because it makes them money. And if you want deterrence, you make it make them less money. But there are other theories of crime, like the routine activity of crime is a model where the probability of crime is really a function of available targets right motivated offenders for whatever their reason and lack of you know guardianship like it's a community that's not working anymore so uh in one if people are just trying to get money well then you're looking at what if they can invest and what they can return and Uh, Can we give them other opportunities? But if you look at something called, you know, oh, I'm sorry. If you look at something like routine activity, that's where you get also the idea of broken windows. Like the community is broken down. Nobody's following the rules. we, We really need to stop this. You know, kind of constant, I uh, maliciousness. Like everybody does it. Mm. So, so we looked at um, basically governance. You know, with the uh, yeah. structural theory of crime, we looked at economic opportunities, and we looked at. Guardianship, which is like private investment in security. Is it the case that everybody in your company has a password that is password one password two? You know, that this is something where you think about you know, market penetration of security software. Uh and for that we we looked at, for example, number of secure internet servers. But then Okay. You want to look at governance, which is everybody does it. Everybody's corrupt. We looked at transparency measures from World Governance International.
0: And so, so the idea here is, so you could, you could possibly use some sort of expected return measure to identify if, it is, if an anomaly is just accident or something by design. Um, Or you could use, you know, some sort of opportunities, availability of opportunities for crime. And you say guardianship or governance Mm -hmm. um, uh, that might be in place. So these things could be put together to, to assign a probability that an anomaly is by design or by accident.
1: Well, yeah. So what we were looking was, let's take... Um some popular indicators of crime, you know governance, availability of targets, guardianship, relative deprivation, and see if these actually predict the sources of these um, the sources of of these anomalies. And we've right. we've done that with other things that we know are definitely crime. So mm-hmm. we did that with malware and sources of spam bots. And we yeah. did it at a uh at a local state level looking at Craigslist mm. um scams and all of those. And we looked at a uh, mechanical Turk versus freelancer. So by the time we had gotten to the question of routing, we had a body of empirical and theoretical work. So that supported this kind of approach with things that we definitely know are crime. Like we know malware is crime. So we wanted to... Build on that and see if these things really are crime. What what percentage of them are crime? Can we find evidence that this is in fact a criminal activity versus a state activity? And then what we did when we found the results and the uh, you know the correlations between transparency, particularly and the data came out in two very clear clusters. Like when you mm-hmm. look at the at the, I don't think we even drew circles around them. You know, how sometimes when you're doing you know like minimum distance cluster calculations and you're trying to show the visualization, so you put a circle around it. I don't think we even did that. We yeah. were like, look, here's clusters. Um, <laughs> and when so we we did this work. We did the correlations, and then we did the the cluster analysis. And some of the some of the correlations seem to predict, or seem to predict is way too strong a word, seem to indicate that we could not reject the hypothesis that this is for criminal, for profit, activity driven by um, a routine activity theory that is e-crime is kind of socially acceptable and available and a way to make money. Um, And then the second smaller cluster, when we looked at the nodes in that cluster, they were um, all places that had active civil conflict. So, I feel that that was it is very hard to figure out what is driving everything on the network, and how we right. can use very traditional tools like um anti-smuggling efforts, interventions into communities, econ- you know economic constri- economic controls. Because to fight global organized e-crime, we need to use all the possible tools we have.
0: Hmm. And and this goes back to, so if it is possible to assign a probability that a, a routing anomaly is um, is related to crime, rather than just by happenstance, then um, you know, going back to what we were discussing before, the the devices becoming more aware and intelligent; uh, those types of attributes could be used to at least alert the user. Yes, right?
1: exactly, absolutely. And then, if you have a situation where what is driving um, e crime is relative deprivation, so then you might say, all right, we're going to try to create opportunities for the people who live here. But if you have a situation where what is driving e-crime is, you know, hostile intelligence, you absolutely do not want to have a policy of going in there and trying to train everybody to be better at computing. So it can also drive higher level insights on how to deal with uh, hotspots.
0: That's very interesting. I want to touch on another paper, uh, Jane, uh, preventing data exfiltration via political and geographic routing policies. Uh, So what, what exactly is exfiltration? Oh,
1: that is what happens when there's a malicious Hijack. So we talked about, you know, the the uh, attack to steal unencrypted bitcoins, and we talked about the traffic that went through Iceland. So those are cases of information exfiltration, where people should not be able to access the information as it goes across the network, but they are able to pull it off the network using an attack. And that's one of those things where we used very basic human observation. That is, um, if you're worried about crime and uh, malicious intelligence agencies, then you're worried about jurisdiction. So we asked the question, In that case, in that paper, what if we just refuse to route through certain jurisdictions? What if we exchanged availability for confidentiality? Just Mm -hmm. like it, it, it is part of that, having the computer collapse around the person And, oh, well, maybe you're going to have to wait. Uh, You can choose between waiting a little bit and sending this, or you can choose this risk of exposure. So one of the questions we ask, either in that paper or in... So there were two papers on that topic. One was at a policy conference and one was at an internet measurement conference. And the policy conference said this is a policy issue and an innovative approach that is worth discussing because it treats jurisdiction and policy and routing as a as an integrated problem with socio-technical dimensions. And then the paper at the Internet Measurement Conference said all right, so we know that autonomous systems and routers have a physical place in the world. What if we took the top 50 financial institutions and looked at how they were routed and said, we are not going to connect to any of these systems that are routing through uh anything other than their usual jurisdictions, how disruptive would that be? And so we found that it would be quite minimally disruptive. There were only four banks that would have been affected. And, and the, it turned out the only bank that would have dropped off of network availability with uh, strict jurisdictional routing policies in that month that we looked at the data would be the Bank of Tehran because its routing varied quite a bit. Like in, it would sometimes go through Europe, and it would sometimes go through Russia, and it would sometimes go through China. But the other, um, the other major financial institutions had not. Cons- <clears throat> I'm sorry. Not consistent routing in terms of their paths or their path length, that would oscillate a bit and the route would, when you know, kind of flap back and forth. But in terms of the jurisdiction through which it passed, did not change. Hmm. So that's a situation where we looked at the risk of e crime in a very different way in a very interdisciplinary way. And, and then we're able to pull up data to say, this is a feasible way of looking at this.
0: Hmm. At, at the very highest level though, Jane, it, it seems to sort of reduce the elegance of internet uh, because it's you know, sort of putting some constraints on it, right? Um, but as you say, it's uh, it's looking at can the user change the objective function? Um, you know, uh, convenience versus confidentiality, or speed versus confidentiality, or something like that. Then, uh, it's a, it does such a technology exist? For example, can I actually put in uh, a, an objective function? You know, which which has these characteristics. And and then the algorithm takes that and and operates on it. it. Does does that exist today? Um. Well,
1: we wrote code to do it, and you could download it and say, "I don't trust these jurisdictions." If you had a yeah. router on site and it's open source code, and if you have information that you do that has, for example, um intellectual property or national security issues, yes, you can pull that down and you know, you have to be a quite competent programmer and let me recommend you some students to hire. But, you know, the, the <laughs> other, other things are happening in this, right? So there's a thing yeah. that is graciously called manners that has come out in the last year called mutually agreed norms for routing security. So that's a global initiative that the Internet Society has been advocating for. And I think, you know, IETF and Usenet, which is very much like that first paper we talked about, where it's really, it's not. Um, it's not it's not simply a technical approach. It is a definition of concrete actions that specific networks should take right and yeah it's about route hijacking route leaks all the things that we talked about but it's about implementing norms of behavior that are not just cryptographic attestations but specific network policies. So Hmm. you could download this code that says, no, don't go to this jurisdiction, or you could demand that your ISP adopt manners, which will effectively say, don't go to that jurisdiction because they are not behaving in the way that we need our partners in routing to behave.
0: Right, yeah. So if, the, if a sufficient number of organizations mm-hmm. adopt that, adopt manners, then, then anomalies are going to sort of stick up like a sore thumb, right? So it will be easier to identify, I would imagine, uh, both anomalies and bad yes, anomalies. Yes,
1: both operational um, issues where people will come together to fix them, but also malicious behavior, so one one can but hope, so I was very happy i'm I'm very excited about manners. I did not contribute to it, but sometimes it's wonderful to say, "I think that the world would be better if things worked this way, and here is all the data and the theory and the and the references that I have that argues for this, and then to see the world getting better and working in that way. On the other wait, hand, wait. sometimes it's really so, terrible yeah, to be right. So, we have this paper about <laughs> um the smuggling theory approach to organized digital crime from like 8 years ago and we said, "Hey, it looks like there are some real emerging regions of e-crime and we should be cognizant of this." And yeah, we so that sometimes it's not fun to be right. <laughs>
0: So, so Jane, in conclusion, um, where, where are we heading in the area of security um, are we Are we better now than we used to be, say five years ago, and looking forward in five years, uh, where do you think we will be do, uh, also related to that, do you see any any specific issues related to the pandemic affecting the security?
1: Well, if you look at the reports of the kind of scams that we've been seeing, I, I want yeah. to do a shout out to the anti-phishing working group here who've been very good at putting together data for a long time and making it freely available and building community to fight e-crime. And also the um, messaging mail and mobile anti-abuse working group. If you look at the data that's coming from industry, attackers are trying to leverage COVID. These ransomware attacks on hospitals, if a company is already under a tremendous amount of strain, for example, being a healthcare organization in a pandemic, they are much more likely to just turn around and pay the ransom. So attackers Mm. are certainly leveraging COVID. And as the pandemic continues and people uh, become more more stressed and increasingly yeah. comfortable taking sensitive information that you know a uh You know, that in March, people, you know, we were working at home, but it was kind of temporary, so maybe you could not touch that system (laughs) for a few weeks or just go in. I think increased opportunities are opening up, but the big shift has been in the past few years from independent operators, um, especially you can... You can see that it's. we're now facing a digital, a world where organized crime is digital. And spam doesn't come right. from the guy down the street who's trying to drum up business anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can see it in my own emails. It's getting more and more sophisticated. And... Uh... And, and it's almost like a constant war, right? Um, the perpetrators get more sophisticated. Um, we we try to counteract that, and it goes on and on. So, yeah. So hopefully things will uh, yeah we need to support
1: better. end users by design. We need to provide better support and not just yell at people for doing something that's quite cognitively difficult.
0: Excellent. This has been great, Jean. Uh, thanks so much. And for thank you time so much
1: for asking me. I really and, enjoyed uh, it.
0: Absolutely. Thanks you so much. Too. Stay Take safe. Care. Bye. Thank
1: you.
0: This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.